You're listening to FIC Resources for Church Leaders. In this episode, you'll hear Colin Smith, Senior Pastor of the Orchard Evangelical Free Church in Chicago, Illinois, speak at the 2019 FIEC Leaders Conference. Colin was speaking about the character of a leader from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Well, it really is a joy and a privilege to be here with all of you tonight and for these three very special days. Uh, I had the privilege of pastoring an FIEC church in Enfield for uh, 16 years, and throughout the 23 years that uh, I've served as the pastor of the Orchard in uh, the northwest suburbs of Chicago, I've always retained the connection with, uh, with FIEC and uh, with the association of pastors that I continue to value. Um, because of family connection here, we've been back at least once every year. And so I have been able, at least in some degree, uh, to see what the Lord has been doing. And I am so thankful, so very, very thankful for the growth that uh, you are experiencing. Um, at least uh, from what I have seen, it is evident that there is a greater unity. There is a greater faith. There is a greater vigor. And there is a greater enterprise for the advance uh, of the gospel. And I want you to know, too, just by way of introduction, that there's a great deal of conversation among evangelicals in America these days about learning to be the fans of the away team. Uh, evangelicals in the States have, of course, over the years been very used to being in the majority position. It has felt to them like being the fans of the home team. The fans from the other team were there too, but they were a smaller crowd, and we had the strength in numbers. Our voices were louder. Well, now, of course, the situation is reversed, and evangelicals have a conversation in which it's often referred to as uh, learning uh, to be the fans of the away team, my response to that is to say, oh, evangelicals in Great Britain learned that a long time ago, (laughs) and it's not all bad. After all, fans at away games often have a greater passion and a greater commitment than fans at the home game who may leave early if the game is not going particularly well. And at least from my perspective, watching what has happened over the last couple of decades here is when rampant secularism washes out nominal Christians from the church, what can happen is that the spiritual temperature begins to rise. Those who are left really believe and get down to more praying. And faith can rise, and a new sense of venture can rise. And it seems to me that over these last years, that is what God in his grace and his mercy has been doing among you. I am so profoundly thankful for it. I often speak where the Lord has set us down these days about this as an example and as a model from which Christian believers in the United States have so very much to learn. So I do have a great sense of privilege to be invited back home after these years, and especially to this conference that means so very, very much uh, to me. Now, I've been asked to speak uh, tonight on leadership and character. Uh, The subtitle that I'd give to that would be The Profile and Progress of a godly leader. I want to talk about the what and also about the how. No use to talk simply about the what if we don't talk also about the how. And so we're going to begin with a profile from uh, Deuteronomy in chapter 17 that was read to us, and then we'll move a little later to 1 Timothy and chapter 4 as we get to some of the how of pursuing what is laid before us. Deuteronomy 17, it seems to me, is a seedbed for everything that we are told later in the Bible about spiritual leadership. And I want to offer from these verses, very simply, a seven-point profile of a godly leader. 
and then to give encouragement as to how we can cultivate the character to which we are called. So here we go. Profile of a godly leader. Number one, the leader must walk with God. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. The leader that was to be appointed as king, and this is described in Deuteronomy chapter 17, must be someone who the Lord himself will choose. Now, choose for what? You you follow this through to the New Testament, and you see the choosing of the Lord Jesus Christ of the disciples. And when he chooses them, he chooses them first for this purpose, that they should be with him. Mark 3 and verse 14. Before anything about preaching, before anything else about ministry, they are chosen to be with him. Intimacy with Christ comes before activity for Christ. I was delighted to see that on the program that we have for these days, there will be a breakout session on leadership and godliness. To be godly at its heart simply means to be God's man or to be God's woman. I take that from Psalm 4 and verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. You're to be God's woman. You are to be God's man. I I counted 15 references to godliness in the New Testament. Twelve of them are in the pastoral epistles. Brothers and sisters, what does that tell us? At the very heart of our calling to be Christian leaders is the calling that first, you are God's man. You are God's woman. And your pursuit of godliness will be the greatest gift that you can give to the church that you serve. Your character matters more than your personality. Your godliness matters more than your church's growth. The leader must first walk with God. Let me quote to you from Thomas Murphy, an American writer of the 19th century. By the way, I love quoting guys who are dead because they can't let you down. (laughs) I'm serious. Uh, Those who have continued in the faith, and have shown fruitfulness over the years. Here's Thomas Murphy writing in regards to those who are called particularly to pastoral ministry, as a good number of us here this evening are. Eminent piety, he says, by which he means godliness, is the indispensable qualification for the ministry of the gospel. The indispensable qualification. There, is, there should be, he says, a more thorough baptism of the Holy Ghost, a more absolute consecration of all the powers and faculties to the service of God, a more complete conformity to the likeness of Jesus, a greater familiarity with the mind of the Spirit in those who take upon themselves the privileges and responsibilities of the pastor, or we may see here in this gathering of spiritual leadership, than are commonly expected even in true Christians. This eminent godliness, he says, is before everything else in preparation for the duties of the sacred office. It's before talents, it's before learning, and it's before study. It's before skill in working. It's before power in sermonizing. And then he says this, Oh, oh, that at the very beginning this could be deeply impressed upon the hearts of young ministers. The first thing for a young minister to consider is how he may attain a high degree of holiness in life. The one thought that should ever be before him is this. This is no ordinary profession that I hold. It is something more sacred, more heavenly, more Christ-like 
than the common callings of men, and therefore I must be more holy. Oh, if God would light in our hearts, young and old, whatever your sphere of influence in Christian leadership, a passion in these three days to say, I must grow in holiness. That would be a gift from above. Second, the leader must love God's people. One from among your brothers, verse 15, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And this kind of follows through in Acts in chapter 6 with the theme of, you know, one from among your own number is to be appointed in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. In other words, God's people are to look for leaders who are committed to the local church and have proved themselves in the local church. The king must be able to say, these are my people. This is the flock that God has put under my care. The people he leads, he must feel deeply, are truly his brothers and his sisters. There must be a deep bond of love between the leader and those who are led. James Denny um, speaks this way to pastors. The power of truth, he says, as far as its ministers are concerned, depends on it being spoken in love. Unless the heart of the preacher is pledged to those to whom he speaks, he cannot hope but to labor in vain. Unless the heart of the one who speaks is pledged to the ones to whom he speaks, he cannot hope but to labor in vain. Lloyd-Jones quotes in uh, Preaching and Preachers, I think it's from Richard Cecil, it is, it is one thing to love to preach, to love those to whom we preach is quite another. Third, the leader must exercise faith. Chapter 17 and verse 16. He must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Now, kings in the ancient world, of course, were always under threat. There was always someone else who was laying claim to the throne. So kings would consolidate power, and they would protect their own position. But God says to the king among his own people, it must not be like that for you. The king among God's people is to model faith. He is not to depend upon chariots and horses. Some trust in chariots and horses, Psalm 20 and verse 7, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, in, in this profile of temptations that leaders face, it's very significant that one of the first to be mentioned, therefore, is this temptation to power. Sometimes leaders wish, if only I had more power. But God says to the king among his people, be very, very careful about that. All kings have horses, but you are not to have many horses. And you are not to go about acquiring more and more, so you aggregate increasing power to yourself. Don't try to become a power. The heart of godly leadership does not lie in having great power, but having great faith in the sovereign power of God. And again, we see that in the New Testament. Stephen is chosen and He's a man full of faith. Leadership among God's people must always be in the hands of those who have great confidence in the living God. And then number four, the leader must be loyal. The leader must be loyal. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn 
away. And of course, in the ancient world, a king would acquire a harem. And taking wives from different royal families was a way of cementing political alliances. But again, God says, it is not to be like that among you, not among my people. And of course, that works its way through into the New Testament, that the elder must be the husband of one wife and must manage his own household well. The word manage is very significant. It clearly indicates that what is being looked for is not a home without problems, but a home in which there is a managing of the problems that arise in the course of life. Um, We are talking here about domestic competence, not some kind of panacea of peace and of joy. And I want just to take a moment in the light of this to remind um, you brothers, and I mean brothers at this point, because I want to speak to those who are our husbands here. Uh, First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, live with your wife according to knowledge. Think about this as we pause here for a moment. There is no one else in the world like your wife. She is not like any other woman God has ever made. And your job is to know her and to understand her. To learn what makes her happy and pursue it to discover what hurts her and avoid it, to understand her struggles, her fears, her hopes and her dreams, and then let that knowledge shape the way that you relate to her. Never let it be said that her friends, her counselor, or anyone else understands her better than you do. Your calling is to be the world expert on your wife. Bar none. That's your calling. God has called you to listen to her and to understand her heart and discover who she is today. You know, I'm sure uh, many of you have the same experience as I do as a pastor. You know, the guy that comes up to you and says, oh, my wife, she's not the woman that I dated, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And you say, well, of course, of course. Understand who she is today. Understand what God is doing in her life now and live with her according to knowledge. And then this, the leader must not be greedy. Chapter 17 and verse 17, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Now, of course, being the king, uh, even in ancient Israel, uh, allowed the opportunity for a man to gather great personal wealth. And that, of course, is what kings did in the ancient world. It just happened that way. But God says it is not to be like that among you. You are the servant of God, and you are the servant of his people. So do not use God's service as a means of feathering your own nest. That's what's said in regards to the king. Be shepherds of God's flock. This translates into the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock, not greedy for money. Now I know that financial pressure is one of the challenges that many pastors face in ministry. So, How, brothers and sisters, are we to guard our hearts in regards to this? Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Pause. How, 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 how? Because God has said, 
I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you notice the command, be content with what you have, is immediately tied to a promise, for God has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. In other words, the motive, and this this is what gospel motivation looks like. The motive for obeying the command comes from believing the promise. We obey the command, in this case, uh, to be content with what you have. We obey the command by believing the promise. The promise that God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Just think about that with me for a moment. To be forsaken by God would be the worst thing imaginable. A person forsaken by God would be utterly alone, completely helpless, and hopeless forever. And God says, brothers and sisters, that will never happen to you. That will never happen to you. You will never be left alone. You will never be without my help. You will never be without the light of hope. Whatever happens, God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, that is how you can learn to be content with what you have. That's how Paul says, I have learned to be content in every circumstance because I can do all things through Christ. Who gives me strength. Isn't this interesting, by the way? We're way back in Deuteronomy 17. And evidently, money, sex, and power were three primary temptations that a leader faced. The world never changes exactly the same as where we all are today. Number six. The leader must be immersed in Scripture. Verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. That is the book of Deuteronomy. So the king, by direct revelation from God himself, is ordered on his anointing to go and make a handwritten copy of this law, in other words, the entire book of Deuteronomy, and this handwritten personal copy of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, is to be with him, and he is to read it, and he is to obey it all the days of his life. Isn't this a remarkable thing? That God's people were to put a crown on the head of the king and then send him off to the study and say, you go write out your own copy of the law of God in your own hand and keep it with you always. Because from the moment the king is crowned, his first task is to learn how to rule. And he can only learn how to lead by the word of God being drip fed into his own life. And that drip feeding of the scriptures, that immersing in the scriptures as a key qualification for Christian leadership shows up again in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9. Leaders must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, all who have leadership at every level amongst the people of God must have this deep immersion in Scripture, and we must hold to it. It must be drip-fed into our lives. What comes from us can only be a reflection of what first comes to us. So here's a profile that's being built given first for the king among God's people, but with principles that run right throughout the scripture into spiritual leadership for the church today. Leaders among God's people must be those who walk with God. The first thing is to be God's man. It's to be God's woman. Must be those who deeply love God's people. Pray for a heart to be renewed in love for the people that you serve. That will be a key to you persevering in serving them. 
The leader must exercise faith. It's not simply to go about trying to accumulate power. The way in which the leader leads effectively, if he's a godly leader, is by exercising faith in the sovereign power of the living God. The leader must be loyal, and especially in regards to his wife, family, must not be greedy, must be immersed in the scriptures. And then seventhly, the leader must model obedience. This is Deuteronomy 17 and verse 19. This handwritten copy of the scripture, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. It is to be with him. The king's handwritten copy of the word of God is to be on his nightstand. It's to be in his studies to take it with him into all the meetings that he goes to. When he walks from one room to another, the scripture goes with him. He reads it every day of his life. And as he reads it, it is to shape his thinking, it is to form his character, it is to direct his leadership. And the scripture that did that for the king amongst God's people in ancient times will do the same for you and for me. And what it brings, notice, particularly is this marvelous and foundational beginning of wisdom that through the scriptures, the leader comes to fear the Lord, that he may fear the Lord all the days of his life. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Um, To fear the Lord is so to love him that his frown would be your greatest dread and his smile your greatest delight. So to love him that his frown would be your greatest dread and his smile your greatest delight. Godly character is of first importance in Christian ministry. Who you are will ultimately make or mar what you do. Let me read to you two quotes that have had an influence in my life because they say something very powerful. The first is a quotation from James Stalker, uh, giving the Yale Lectures on Preaching in 1891. But this speaks right into our time. The effect of a sermon, says Stalker, depends first of all on what is said And next, on how it is said, but hardly less on who says it. We are so constituted that what we hear depends very much for its effect on how we are disposed towards the person who speaks. The regular hearers of a a minister gradually form in their minds, almost unawares, an image of what he is, and into this image they put everything which they themselves remember about him, everything that they have heard about his record, and when he arises on Sunday in the pulpit, it is not the man visible there at the moment that they listen to, but this image which stands behind him and determines the precise weight and effect of every sentence that he utters." In other words, people hear, brothers and sisters, what we say in the light of what they perceive we really are. The other quote that has grabbed my attention and imagination in this regard comes, of all places, from Charlotte Bronte and her book, Jane Eyre. Now, those of you who have a love for this kind of literature will know that the character Jane uh, reflects uh, Bronte's own experience quite clearly at a number of points. And at one place in Jane Eyre, 
Charlotte Bronte describes the experience of going to church and hearing a gifted young preacher. And the vocabulary, of course, is quite brilliant. So let me read you these few paragraphs. The heart was thrilled and the mind was astonished by the power of the preacher, but neither the heart nor the mind was softened. Throughout, there was a strange bitterness, an absence of consolatory gentleness. When he had done, instead of feeling better, calmer, more enlightened by his discourse, I experienced an inexpressible sadness. For it seemed to me that the eloquence to which I had been listening had sprung from a heart where lay turbid depths of disappointment, where moved troubling impulses of insatiate yearnings and disquieting aspirations. Oh, to be able to write like that. I was sure that the preacher, pure-minded, conscientious, and zealous as he was, had not yet found that peace of God that passeth all understanding. He knew no more of it than did I. Now, brothers, sisters, here is a leadership profile that lays out what we are called to be that is absolutely foundational to everything that we are called to do. We want to be used by God. So in wanting to be used by God, let us walk with God. Let us love God's people. Let us learn to trust him. In all things, our people need to see that it is possible to trust God and to see that we are able to do that. Let's cultivate loyalty in all our commitments and especially in the cultivation of an understanding love in that closest relationship of all. And let's place the pursuit of money on the altar of God and determine to receive what God gives us and to steward it gladly. Let us immerse ourselves in the word of God and commit to a life of daily obedience as we seek to live a life that is worthy of the calling that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Now there's a profile right out of the Old Testament, a seven-point profile of a godly leader. That's the what. Let's spend a few moments together on the how. We've looked at a profile of a godly leader. Let's now ponder together how we can make progress. How, brothers and sisters, can we, all of us, how can we make progress in this life to which God has called us and in this work that God has given to us. And here I encourage you, if you can, to turn over to First Timothy and chapter 4. And I want just to read verses 12 through 15 in regards to this great theme of progress. First Timothy chapter 4 and verses 12 uh, through 15. Here we read, Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. I love that. Progress. Progress. The good news is that nobody expects you to be perfect. People will never see perfection in us. There is only one king that fulfills all the godly character that is pointed to throughout the Scripture. But while our people will never see perfection in us, by God's grace, 
they will be able to see progress. And the question then is how? How do I make progress in regards to my speech, in regards to my love, in regards to my conduct, in regards to my faith, and in regards to my purity? The New Testament is full of proactive language that speaks to us about the path of progress. I mean, just here in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself. Verse 10, toil and strive. Verse 13, devote yourself. Verse 15, practice, immerse yourself. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself. And again, verse 16, persist in this. Throughout the New Testament, proactive language in regards to spiritual growth is everywhere. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Who's to do that? We are. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your sinful nature. Who's to do that? We are. You must rid yourselves, Colossians 3.9, of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander. To be proactive in ridding myself by the power of the spirit of these things. Abstain from spiritual desires. Who's to do that? We are to do that. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Put off falsehood, Ephesians 4.25, and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are members of one body. Fight the good fight. Take hold of eternal life. Watch and pray. Who is to do these things? Always by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit we are. So brothers and sisters, let me end by giving you these three strategies for making progress as I've been given this responsibility of bringing before all of us, first myself and now all of us together, the challenge of the pursuit of a godly life and the strategic importance of who we are as underlying all that we do. In the light of the proactive language that is used in the New Testament, identify your primary battles. James says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In some sense, the particular temptations that we face in our lives are tied to our own flesh. The distinctive battles that are faced, there'll be many that are in common, but they'll be different in terms of the intensity of where the warfare is waged. And knowing yourself is of huge importance in the Christian life. David was an impulsive person. And he fell into an impulsive sin. Jonah was an introverted person. And his temptation was to sulk outside Nineveh in his introversion. Hezekiah was an extrovert. His temptation was to show off all of his wealth to an enemy who in the end, generations later, plundered it. A person who is meticulous may be tempted to hold a grudge and not to forgive. A person who is naturally cautious may be tempted to live with fear rather than with faith. Become a student of your own heart. Get to know the special temptations that lie within the frame of your own temperament. Are you someone who is often tempted to control? Or is it to withdraw? Or is it to resent? Or is it to rebel? Ask God to show you what you are up against. Ask him to show you the hidden sins that lurk within your own heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Do this with an open Bible. And God, through his word, will begin to open your eyes to see things. And because God can work through others who he places in our lives, you might even dare to ask someone else to help you in this identification. I have, from time to time, 
found great benefit in asking my own wife to help me on this. I say from time to time because I don't want to overdo it here. But I remember one of the first times that I did this very clearly. We were on a long journey. We, you know, you get into good conversations in long journeys. And I said at one point, can you help me by identifying a sin that you think I ought to be fighting against more strongly in my life? And she thought for a moment and paused and then said very sweetly, can I tell you too? (laughs) How are you, brother or sister, going to wage war against sin in your life if you cannot name a single sin that you're actively fighting against right now? One for which you're watching one against which you are on your special guard. Don't let admitting that you are a sinner become a substitute for confessing your sins. Confessing your sins to God, placing them under the blood of Christ and growing in the hating of them to the point where you leave them behind. Listen to Spurgeon on this. The first advice I give you is this, particularize your sins. Do not say, I am a sinner. It means nothing. Everybody says that. But say this, am I a liar? Am I a thief? Am I a drunkard? Have I had unchaste thoughts? Have I committed unclean acts? Have I in my soul often rebelled against God? Am I often angry without a cause? Have I a bad temper? Am I covetous? Do I love this world better than the world to come? Do I neglect prayer? Put the questions upon the separate points and you will soon convict yourself much more readily than by taking yourself in the gross, in other words, in general, as being a sinner. Identify your primary battles and then confront your hidden sins and do it early. Confront your hidden sins. When desire has conceived, James says, It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, you let it get fully grown, it gives birth to death. You cannot let it get to that point. So Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Our Lord Jesus says to the disciples, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. I have been so helped on this by John Owen and his masterful work on mortification uh, of sin. Uh, Do read that, especially in in the the Banner uh, version or the Capage version, um, if you have not uh, read it. Let me quote to you from Owen here. He speaks about sin's trajectory. Where is it going? See, he's making the point, we've got to go after what would destroy us early before it becomes full grown. Quote, Ask envy what it aims at. Ask envy, just a little bit of envy. We might be tempted to that in a conference like this. Your brother is being greatly blessed. Ask envy what it aims at. Murder and destruction are its natural conclusion then set yourself against it as if it had already surrounded you in wickedness. You see what he's saying? Envy, if it was allowed to go all the way, its natural conclusion is murder. You eliminate the person towards whom you feel this envy. That if it goes all the way, that's where it goes. So arm yourself against it as if it had already got there. Hate it that much. Then he goes on. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. 
and every unbelieving thought would be atheism. You have an unbelieving thought. Owen says you just say to yourself at that point, boy, if I went all the way down that road, I'd be an atheist. That's where this unbelieving thought leads. Sin's expression, he says, is modest in the beginning, but once it has gained a foothold, it takes further ground and presses on to greater heights. So says Owen, always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Temptation gains power by, by building a position in your life. Every time you say yes to the flesh, you increase its power in your life. Every time you say no to the flesh, you diminish its power in your life. So confront sin early and win some battles in your war against the flesh. It's a long war. Win some battles in your war against the flesh. Identify your primary battles. Confront your hidden sins. And here's the last thing. Trust your gracious Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Do you see this again? Gospel motivation. We alluded to it earlier. For to this end we toil and strive. How are you going to find the energy of toiling and striving against sin in the power of the Spirit? For to this end we toil and strive because... We have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. The energy in this fight comes from the hope that we have that is set on our Lord Jesus Christ. The best way to move forward in the way of Christ is to feed on the work of Christ. And by the way, of course, because that applies in our own lives, it also applies in regards to our ministry. You want to move your people. I want to move my people forward in the way of Christ. The best way to move your people forward in the way of Christ is to feed them on the work of Christ. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The law of God can tell us what ungodliness is, but it's only the grace of God in Jesus Christ that's really going to give us the energy, the desire, and the power that enables us to actually say no to ungodliness. Luther says this, the law says do this and it is never done. Grace says believe this and everything is done already. The law gives you the direction as to what to do, but only Christ in the gospel by his spirit gives the power to do it. And that is why we must always be gospel people ourselves and gospel-centered in our ministry. Someone who's in our extended circle who's quite elderly now and his story has influenced me quite considerably he served as a pastor in a small church for a number of years very faithfully and early in life his wife died of cancer and he journeyed through all of that and some years later, when I met him, I was asking him about church and said, and how are things at your church? And it became apparent he wasn't going. And I said, what, why, why did you stop going? And, and he said this, week after week, what you need to do what we need to be. I just couldn't take it any longer. Thank God, brothers and sisters, we have something better to give people and we have something better to feed our own souls on than what we need to do and what we need to be. 
We have the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I've quoted a number of folks who are with the Lord already, so let me in this very last quote, quote one of my favorites, Robert Murray McShane. And McShane writing to a friend, speaking about the pursuit of godliness and particularly confronting the sins that need to be confronted in our own hearts, says this. Learn much of your own heart. And when you have learned all that you can, remember that you have seen but a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. How's that for Scottish gloom, eh? When you've learned all that you can, remember you've only seen a few yards into a pit that is unfathomable. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Then this, learn much of the Lord Jesus and for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. What do you think about that for proportion, eh? For every look that you take at yourself, and you must take 10 looks at Jesus Christ, your all-sufficient and glorious Savior, whose grace, brothers and sisters, is sufficient for you as it is for me. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is marvelous to us that you have called us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is extraordinary to us that you should have called us to leadership within your church. We feel our own need, and we want to be better men and women than we have yet become. We thank you that in your grace you take us up as you are, as we are, and yet tonight, dear Lord, we want to ask for progress. Save me, dear Lord, from simply becoming an older version of what I was before. Let me become more like the Lord Jesus Christ as years pass. And let me be intentional in the pursuit of this. Thank you for the privilege and the high calling of ministry. Now, Lord, grant light that flame in this heart for the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of Christ-likeness, that what we by your grace do may come out of who we are in Christ by grace, Hear our prayers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from FIEC. For more resources for church leaders, subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app and visit our website at fiec.org.uk. And don't miss our new podcast launching this autumn, Independence. It will feature regular discussions on relevant topics to help independent churches work together to reach Britain for Christ. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or watch on YouTube and the FIEC website.